It's great to worship, isn't it? Uh, I remember uh, a guy came to me, uh, you know, years ago and said, you know what, Sunday is my favorite day of the week. I said, oh, why is that? Well, I get to worship with like-minded people. I get to worship with like-minded people. Uh, worship is uh, a response to God always initiating, uh, but to worship corporately and together uh, and to be with other people who also love the Lord is a great privilege, isn't it? And as Laura mentioned, not every place in the world can you do that. And so uh, how thankful we can be. Well, we're thinking together a little bit this summer about the kind of life that God wishes for us or that God desires for us. And uh, we saw uh, John 10.10 is kind of our theme verse. And we saw in that verse that Jesus, when he was here, he said, you know, I have come that you might have life and have it, remember, abundantly, abundantly. And we said that that life, that abundant life, is a life that both never ends, it's eternal, and not only does it never end, but it fills us and satisfies us and makes us content in this life and forever Uh, to the point where that life overflows out of us and begins to influence uh, the folks uh, around us. And to that life, Jesus said, you know, I am the door. I am the way to that life. I am the door, like uh, in a sheepfold, you know, there's a door. And Jesus says, I'm the way into that kind of life. And then he said, I am also the good shepherd. I will lead you in that life. And if you follow me and cooperate with me, I will give you this abundant life. My sheep hear me, my voice, they know my voice, and uh, they follow me, they obey me, they benefit uh, from uh, who I am and what I have uh, for them. And so, um, you know, there's a great benefit in taking God at his word and applying it to our lives. You're probably familiar with this in 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, the Bible says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be competent. Now, depending on which version of the Bible you have, uh, it might say uh, not competent, but it might say complete. Or uh, the King James Version says perfect, that the man of God might be or the woman of God might be perfect, equipped for every good work. Remember we saw that the Bible says that you and I are uh, God's workmanship and that God's working on us and he's shaping us and he's got a plan for our life and he's got a purpose for us being here at this particular point in time. And so when we trust Jesus, when we follow him, when he is the door through which we enter this life that he wants to give him, when we trust him and entrust ourselves to him, we saw that our beliefs begin to influence our attitudes. What goes on on the inside between us and God uh, comes out on the outside uh, in terms of our attitudes or our understanding about how things are. And that's why I like to say to people all the time, listen, the most important thing about your life is your beliefs. What you believe is the single most important thing about your life because from what you believe, uh, that will influence the way you think. And the way you think will influence the way you feel. The way you feel about yourself, the way you feel about God, the way you feel about life, the way you feel about other people. And that will, uh, in turn, influence the choices that we make. So depending on our beliefs, it works its way, uh, our beliefs work their way out. 
And we've been talking a little bit about attitudes. Uh, Our attitudes change when we allow uh, the voice of our shepherd to influence us at a level that makes a difference. Um, And if we believe that God wants to give us an abundant life, if we believe way back in Genesis 12 that God said, hey, my whole purpose through human history is going to be to bless all the families of the earth. That's what I'm going to be about. That's what life's going to be about. I am going to bless all the families of the earth. And he started with Abraham and went to Israel and and eventually to the church and to us and so forth. Then I suggested that an attitude change, uh, a pretty significant attitude adjustment happens in us when we really believe that God is out to bless us and that God is out to give us abundance, right? Um. Oftentimes, people think that, you know, if I get too close to God, it's going to be all about what God wants from me. And I blame us pastor types for that because we're always on people for more, you know. And so we think, oh, the Christian life is all about, you know, what more God wants from me. But the truth of the matter would be, my attitude would be, you know what? Uh, It's not about what God wants from me as much as it is about what God wants for me. And when God takes from me or asks from me, it's designed only to give back to me, right? It's like you telling your kids to eat asparagus or something. You know, they don't want to do it necessarily, and they think you're asking something from them. But the truth is, you're just trying to maintain their health. You're trying to make them joyful and happy and have a healthy life. And here's God, and he comes and he he says, listen, if you'll do this and this and this, you know, that's my means through which I'll be able to uh, give to you what I have in mind for you. But that's a big attitude adjustments, uh, adjustment. And besides, um, uh, we saw in the Beatitudes, remember Jesus in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, starts it with attitudes. That great sermon that talks about this abundant life and uh, how it comes to us is uh, started with, hey, here's some Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude is... Hey, listen, uh, you know, when we're empty, when we come to the table with nothing and we depend entirely on God, like we just sang about this morning, you know, and we recognize that we are totally dependent upon him, that's to whom the kingdom of God belongs, the poor in spirit, those who recognize we're bankrupt spiritually. We have nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to offer this God who has chosen to love us and do for us what we cannot uh, do for ourselves through Jesus. And so that's the first kind of attitude that God asks us to embrace. It's not about us loving God more. It's about us understanding how much God really loves us and what he's done for us. You know, God always goes first. God loves first. God speaks first. God goes first. Worship is basically responding uh, to God's initiatives toward us. God created us, you know, and God comes to us in the person of Jesus. God always goes first. And worship is our opportunity to respond uh, to what God does and what God says, how much he really loves us. Now, this morning, I hope you realize, um, but I played a trick on you, and you probably don't, and, and you love me, so you didn't pick this up. But I misquoted our theme verse, right? I said, here's what Jesus said. But I misquoted the verse. I left off the first part. And the first part of this verse uh, is what I'd like to speak about this morning. Jesus said this, the thief comes 
to steal and kill and destroy this life that God is trying to give us. Why is it so hard to maintain the abundant life? Why is it so hard to live in this world and not be exuberant in this abundant life that God has given us? Well, because the world is not a neutral place. Jesus says, listen, there's a thief. There's an enemy. There's somebody who's out to take away everything I'm trying to give you, the Lord says. And, um, you know, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Uh, Why is it so hard to maintain? And God wants to give us this great life in Christ, but it's hard to experience and hard to maintain in the course of our everyday lives. There's a thief. And uh, the good news, however, is that in 1 John 4, 4, we're told that the spirit that lives in us is greater than the spirit that lives in the world. And this uh, thief is a spirit, you know, that lives in the world. He's, in fact, called the small g God of this world. The spirit of the world uh, and the spirit of God are opposed to one another. But 1 John 4, 4 reminds us, I go back to this passage often, right? Uh, the spirit that lives in you is greater than the spirit that lives in the world. Doesn't mean we don't have to contend with them, uh, but uh, we can know that we have the victory. In um, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, For everybody who's been born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. The world doesn't defeat, right, the person who's living off of the spirit of God. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. That's all God asks us to do is to believe him, to take him at his word, and uh, to believe him. And so Jesus himself, uh, in John chapter 16, when he was here, said this, you know, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And so the possibility of this abundant life, in spite of the fact that there is a thief, is still very, very real. But we all have to deal with the thief, right? We all have to deal with this thief. And the Bible says a lot about him. He's called by a lot of different names in the Bible. He's called a roaring lion by Peter. Uh, He's called the tempter. He's called the evil one. Jesus called him the father of lies, That's a a significant one, one I want to camp out on a little bit today. Um, In John uh, chapter 8, Jesus talked about him as the father of lies. Uh, I call him the author of misinformation in terms of our, you know, uh, language today. Uh, Here's what Jesus said in verse 44. You are of your father the devil. He was talking to some people who wouldn't put their faith in him. And uh, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He uh, has and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and he is the father of lies. He is the master of misinformation. His uh, modus operandi is to deceive those of us who would take God uh, at face value, take his word at face value. He's the generator, if you will, of uh, misinformation. And that's how it got started, as you know, back in the Garden of Eden, uh, where he's called the serpent. And uh, you remember God said, hey, in the day you eat, you know, you'll die. And Satan comes along and says, oh, no, no, no. In the day you eat, you won't die. You'll be like God. You'll be able to decide right and wrong for yourself. 
and the master of misinformation, you know, uh, got into our earthly uh, original father. The thief lied and stole away uh, Adam's commitment to God. And uh, he's the master of information, uh, all of which is designed to deceive. He's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians. He's God's enemy. He's a thief. And he disguises himself, the Bible says, as an angel of light or a friend of Jesus. Master of misinformation, loves half-truths, right? Uh, disguising himself as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul uh, writes about him and um, in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. Uh, here's what uh, scripture says about him. Um, boy, the lighting's poor up here. So that we would not uh, be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So that we wouldn't be outwitted. You know what Satan's target is? Our minds. So that we would not be outwitted. And so scripture is loaded with information about the enemy's schemes or the enemy's designs is the way that the, uh, uh, our Bibles have it today. Uh, his designs. We know his game plan. Maybe you were interested in watching the NBA basketball playoffs, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, part of the fun is listening to the strategies of how, you know, one team will watch all the films of the enemy's uh, games so that they can figure out what are their moves, how do they play, what are their, you know, prime go-to uh, uh, plays and the other team will watch film of the other team and they want to get to know you know that's going to be my enemy and I'm going to try to win and beat them and so forth and the scriptures say the same thing that we have this thief this enemy that tries to steal away the abundant life that God wants to give and we need to know his designs we need to know in, in Ephesians 6 um, that's the passage that talks about the armor of God you know the first piece of armor is the belt of truth the belt of truth, so that we can stand against the schemes. There's where uh, the same word that's translated designs here is translated schemes there. But it's the idea, you know, of uh, understanding our enemy's strategy and uh, being able then to stand against him. Um, in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 11, uh, where I just read, Paul is talking about forgiveness and how how tricky it is if you won't forgive somebody for whatever, however they've offended you and so forth. The enemy knows that and takes advantage of that. And uh, Paul, Paul is saying, you know, we have to forgive so that we won't be outwitted by Satan. If you allow a spirit of bitterness or unforgiveness to kind of grow in you, it can sidetrack you right off the route that God has planned for your life. And uh, we allow that root of bitterness and don't deal with it. And it, it can actually just take us right out of the game of the abundant life that God really wants to give us. Uh, it's a design of the enemy. Um, what the thief is after is our minds. In 2 Corinthians 11 and uh, uh, verse 3, um, Paul writes again, and he says, I'm afraid that the serpent... Uh, deceived Eve by his cunning, his deception, his misinformation, his lies. Uh, I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. 
Uh, As the serpent deceived Eve, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's like, I'm afraid that if you don't listen to what God is saying about how to receive that abundant life, that the enemy, just like he deceived Eve, will deceive us and uh, we will not experience the reality of the life that God has come to give us. Uh, So, the thief does what he can do to make you think contrary uh, to what God tells us. But the truth, as scripture says, sets us free. So the truth frees us, uh, if you will, to adjust our attitudes. Because remember, Satan is what? The God of this world. It's his spirit that dominates in the world. And uh, when that happens and we live in this world and we're influenced by this world, we kind of eventually have to decide, am I going to allow the world to influence my attitudes or am I going to allow God to influence my attitudes? And I'm going to come up with a totally different attitude. I'm going to, in fact, become increasingly like the person of Jesus and his attitudes, which were counterculture attitudes to religious people and to secular people. If you follow Jesus around, if you go to that lady's study and uh, study the Gospel of Luke and just follow Jesus around, you'll see that his attitude toward everything was different than the world's attitude. And uh, eventually the world couldn't deal with it and, uh, as you know, uh, put Jesus on the cross. And so uh, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so we live our lives in between the God who loves us and has this abundant life for us and the thief who's out to steal this life that God is actually working hard uh, to give us. And again, uh, if we go to uh, Peter, uh, Peter talks about this. And Peter says that we live in between. 1 Peter 5, uh, where... um, This thief is talked about as a roaring lion in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time God may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he says this, the next couple of verses. Be sober-minded, Be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour, seeking somebody to take out of the game. Your adversary, the thief, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, firm in your faith. There's a great passage of scripture back in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 9 that says this, and I quote, you know, if you are not strong in your faith, you will not be strong in anything. That's why I say your beliefs, your faith are the most important thing about you. And if you are not firm, if you're on the fence, well, I'm thinking about it, you know, and I'm deciding about it. And I'm, you know, if you're you're not firm in your faith, well, then you're easy pickings, right, for your low-hanging fruit for the enemy to, to, to get. If you're not firm in your faith, you won't be firm in anything. If you don't know what you believe and don't have a place to come down, then everything is affected. How you think, how you feel, how you make choices, all of that is affected by whether or not we really believe. And so Peter is saying, you know, there's like a roaring lion roaming around looking for somebody to devour. 
Uh, Resist him, stay firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know that passage in Corinthians where Paul talks about the fact that God monitors what he allows into our life and he has reasons and he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able and he'll always provide a way out? Now we either believe him or we don't. You know, do I get into a situation that I can trust him uh, in spite of the fact that it doesn't feel, uh, you know, like I can and so forth? When tragedies strike and catastrophes uh, come our way, you know, uh, I think of Job. You remember the book of Job? It's an interesting book in the Old Testament. And um, when you think about a roaring lion uh, looking for somebody to devour, I think the story of Job kind of illustrates what Peter is uh, warning us about. And um, uh, when you think about it, Job is the oldest book in the Bible, uh, most scholars believe. And uh, I think perhaps Job addresses the oldest question in the world, which is, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? And so when you go back to uh, the book of Job and kind of ask this question, you ever ask that? You ever, you know, something happens, some tragedy comes, some tornado comes and just wipes out a town, you know, or an earthquake happens or something happens in your personal life on an individual basis, and you're asking the question, God, why? Why? I did this just a couple of weeks ago when I found out that Tim Keller died. And I'm like, God, what? this doesn't make sense. He's probably the best theologian that we have, contemporary theologian in America. And he dies early. He's a prolific writer, a great, you know, thinker. And I'm like, God, you know, in my world, this doesn't make sense. You should have left him here for a while. And me telling God what he should do, right? What a joke. You see, but did you ever ask that question? God, why? Why is this happening? And uh, I think the book of Job is pretty instructive uh, in this regard. Let me just refresh your memory. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along in Job uh, chapter 1, just think about this roaring lion who comes to steal and kill and destroy this thief that's out to steal the life that God's giving us. And Job chapter 1, if we start at like verse 8, It says, um, uh, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God says to the thief, have you considered my man Job? Right? Uh, There is none like him, God says, on the face of the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. (laughs) That's quite a compliment from God, right? That's pretty cool. I would like to be described like that. And... um, Then Satan answers the Lord and says, Does Job serve God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has? On every side you've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. This is a a battle that's going on between the thief and God, right? Over Job. Job's the, the, the battleground. And here's God and Satan having this conversation right at at a spiritual level and uh and the lord says back to satan behold all that he has is in your hand you go be the god of this world you go be you know the god of job all that he has is in your hand only against him do not stretch out your hand and so satan went out from the presence of the lord and i won't take time to read the whole story but everything that god had been giving to job 
Satan took away. It's dramatic because it's all in one day, you know. But really, the story of Job is the story of all of us. Eventually, we lose everything in this life, right? Eventually, we die and we leave everything behind and so forth. The story of Job is really the story of all of us. And so, you know, he makes it as bad as he can. He kills his kids with weather. You know, I often ask, well, who's behind these tornadoes? You know, it's, here, here's where I'm trying to get to, the author of Misinformation. It's really bad when we blame God for what Satan does. And we get angry at God for what Satan has brought about. And we confuse, and Satan loves a strategy. It's a design, it's a scheme. Get us to be separated from God by anger over what Satan does. You know, because why? Because we just don't understand. And so, you know, his kids all die, his sheep get stolen, his camels, you know, he had like uh, double-decker camels, you know, he was really, he had all kinds of things, ways that God had blessed him and so forth. And anyway, all of it is taken away from him. Uh, Verse 20 says, Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. That's amazing to me. And here's what he said in his worship. He said, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked, I'm going to return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Tragedy upon tragedy, you know, the worst things that you could possibly think of to have happened to somebody. And at the end of the day, Job worshipped God. How did he do that? How did he do that? Um, I think, uh, you know, well, and then the story goes on, right? So Satan comes back and says, well, you know, you won't let me make him sick. You're protecting his health. But if I you know, take him down physically, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, well, you can do what you want to him, but you can't kill him. And uh, you know the story, right? And uh, so Job goes out and uh, uh, Satan goes out and makes Job really sick and so forth. And, uh, you know, his wife has had enough, right? In uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, his wife says to him, are you still going to hold on to your integrity, your faith? Why don't you curse God and die? His wife says to him. She had it. She got to the end of her rope. Here's what he said back to her. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And uh, back in the first chapter, after Job worshipped, the Bible makes a comment a comment on him, and all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Didn't blame God. Understood that, uh, you know, God gave permission and, and so on, but he wasn't going to blame God. And so from Job, I want to suggest that we learn another kind of uh, attitude adjustment. Uh, call it an attitude adjustment. Job's attitude toward God uh, was that God is good all the time, no matter what. God is good all the time, no matter what. Is that our attitude toward God, that God is a good God? 
Maybe you grew up with this prayer when you sat around the table. God is great. God is good. Right? God is good all the time, no matter what. How do you get through these difficulties that come into our life, these challenges that come into our life, without an attitude toward God that I trust, that my shepherd that I'm following is good all the time, no matter what, no matter what it looks like, no matter what happens down here on the earth, God is good. And we learn this, I think, from Job. Job's attitude, the Bible says, was sinless. Job's attitude was that God is good all the time, no matter what, even when God allows the thief to bring evil right into our lives where uh, it can do the most damage. Because why? As we New Testament type people know, God is actually working all things, all, all things, even the bad, together for what? Good to those who are called according to his purpose. Is that my attitude toward God? Is God taking something from me because he's got something he wants to give me? And is that his means for uh, blessing me? Because that's his purpose. That's his vision for all the people that he created and that he loves. God so loves the world, right? That he gave his son and so on. So uh, the attitude, is that my attitude toward God? Uh, God is good all the time, no matter what. Uh, To have confidence in the goodness of God is essential to experiencing the abundant life that God wants to give us. God is good all the time, no matter what. Um, You know, uh, let's see what time here. Um, In the book of Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, God talks about people who have faith, right? And he sort of parades this long list of people and all the different ways in which, you know, uh, and I'm just going to break in here and I can read the whole thing. But in verse 29, it says, by faith, right? People cross the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do that, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had encircled the walls for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me, right, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead in resurrection. Middle of the verse. Now those are the stories that we tell our kids, right? We, we go to Sunday school and we hear about Samson and David and Goliath and you know, and uh, all of these heroes of the faith who accomplish great things. But right in the middle of the verse, okay, comes the next words. There's a whole other group of ordinary people who, by faith, right, experience a whole different kind of life than those people. And uh, right in the middle of that verse, it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about uh, in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. All these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So all of a sudden, there's all these heroes that we like to talk about and that we tell everybody, and so we get this idea about the goodness of God, and if you'll put your faith in God, nothing bad will ever happen to you or come your way. But it's only half the story. What about all these other people whose faith in God led them into all of these difficult, terrible trials? And they never received what was promised in this life. He's talking about Old Testament people. And it's always a mistake, you know, to take the, God's made many promises to us, but it's always a mistake to take the promises that God made for the future and insist on their fulfillment in this life. Huge mistake. Creates an attitude problem. God, I thought you said. And God said, oh, well, I, I mean that, but it's for the future. It's for your eternal life. It's not for life now. And if we don't study this, there's another great passage of scripture in the Old Testament, it's the 119th Psalm. You know what it says? Uh, I think it's like verse 160. It says, the sum of your truth, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word. You can't just go pick and choose a verse here and a verse there and apply it to yourself and get mad at God because, you know, he didn't do what he said. No, you got to take everything in context. You got to take everything that's in the Bible and put it together in a way that you have the whole truth of God. The sum of God's word is truth. And the enemy knows that, you know, we were a little slack in terms of our study of scripture and so forth. And so he picks and chooses and gives us, you know, he masquerades as an angel of light. Remember when he tempted Jesus? He quoted scripture to Jesus. Because he took everything out of context and he tried to make Jesus, you know, twist Jesus' thinking by quoting scripture, but out of context of the sum of God's word. And Jesus corrects it by bringing other scripture to bear upon that scripture so that we can find what the Bible calls, I believe, the narrow way. You know, wide is the way that leads to destruction. I think he can fall off on either side. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And that narrow way is, I call it, the tension between seemingly opposite ideas. It's the sum of God's word that gives us uh, the truth. And, uh, you know, people often say, well, you know, if God is so good, um, then why does he allow, why does he do something about all the evil that's in the world? I hear this all the time, right? Why doesn't God, if God is so good, if you're going to champion the goodness of God no matter what, why doesn't he do something? And of course the answer is, well, he has. He has. He's made a way for us to be reconciled to him. He's made a way for people to be forgiven. He's made a way for this life to pass away in order that we might live in a place called heaven. God's done this for us. And uh, if you're going through you know, a dark time um, and it's because there's so much inf- misinformation and lies and darkness and, uh, you know, all of that, um, and you say, well, you know, I don't think that God is very good. I would say that uh, the way that we recover is to fix our eyes on the cross 
and remind ourselves who's on that cross and what he's doing. And remind yourself that there's probably a drop of blood with your name at the foot of that cross. And the goodness of God will come back to us. The gospel, the good news of what God has done for us, eternal life, you know, changes everything. Changes our attitude toward a God who is good no matter what, all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the Bible. We're so thankful that you speak to us, that we're not left here to kind of speculate and think on our own, but that you, Father, want us to know the truth, and you've put the truth in your word, you've sent the truth in the person of Jesus, and you've sent your spirit so that we can grasp the truth, and uh, the truth has the ability to set us free, has the power, Father, to uh, adjust our attitudes so that we might go through life uh, abundantly as you seek for us to live. For Jesus' sake, amen.